0: So I had them, I took my dress shoe down there and had them make a mold after my dress shoe and make a chocolate mold that was full size and I had them put it in plexiglass and I sent it to this guy and this is the cliche of cliches. I said, I'm trying to just get my foot in the door. Will you please just talk to me for five minutes? Does this chocolate earn me five minutes? And I got a meeting with that.
1: Welcome to Pipelineology, The business-to-business podcast for agencies, consultants, coaches, and businesses looking to build a pipeline of hot prospects ready to buy their products and services. Never wonder where your next client is coming from. To learn more about our strategies, services, and for resources on building your sales pipeline, visit Pipelineology.com. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of Pipelineology. Got a very exciting episode for you today. I am pleased to be joined by the founder and partner at Gerson and Associates, Randy Gerson. Randy, welcome to the show.
0: Gary, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, this should be fun and entertaining. So thank you.
1: I'm looking forward to it myself. So I guess before we get into the, uh, the interview here, could you just kind of give us a, a quick little uh, bit about your background, your story, uh, and then we'll get into more stories.
0: Sure, be happy to do that, yeah. Um, what a lot of people don't know about me actually, I was born in downtown Los Angeles. So I'm a LA big city baby. Um, the only bigger city would probably be New York at the time in the United States. And uh, grew up in LA in Orange County, kind of watched it grow. Over time, uh, earlier in my career, I was actually a athlete. Uh, I played professional tennis for a super short, less than a year career. Injured my knees, and that was like a flash in the pants. Now in my career, um, but people that maybe don't know that about me, but I do have an athletic background um, and still tend to stay in shape and participate in a lot of sports. But professionally, um, after that, I actually got into a sales career. So helped my parents build a business. Uh, did some operational things for them, but eventually my father decided I need to be in sales out in the field. And I got this really great sales training from him. Uh, You'll love this. It was, he put a pitch book together, which was just samples of the materials that we created, a cover on it with the company's name, bought me a new suit at 24 years old, and kicked me out the door and said, go sell. That was my training. Um, Oh, boy. So really (laughs) zero training at all he says go out and talk to people and he just gave me a list and said go bang on door that's literally was my sales training for my dad um and those that know my dad know that he's got a good gift for getting along with people so he figured that i've got that gift from him and it should work out fine for me um little did i know how difficult sales was going to be um, did i get some deals sure i think on the pity of my father mentioning his name a couple people <laughs> signed some agreements and gave us business <laughs> Uh, But did I close some deals on my own? Maybe one, maybe two to my recollection, but now that I look back on it, it was a lot of charity case uh, back then. And so not a great way, but very typical way that a lot of people start out in sales career. They have an expert personality and think, ah, I could be in sales. It's good money, I enjoy it, I enjoy talking to people, but not so fast, sales isn't that simple. From there, um, I actually left the company and really started my sales career. I landed a job at Xerox Corporation. Um, This was back in their heyday. And those that want to look it up, Xerox was uh, famous for winning an award, and I'll get to that in just a minute. Um, But I started in sales there, got training from them. Xerox would not allow you to talk to a customer, even though you had a budget ticking over your head for the year until you were fully trained, which took about three months. Um, It's seven to eight weeks of full training, two weeks at a time. They ship you to their training center, which has 6,000 students, uh, six students to one teacher, video training, uh, sales process, sales consulting training, math training, how to do contracts, negotiating skills, you name it, the whole nine yards. It was the best of the best. Um, I graduated from there after three months of having my budget tick over my head and put uh, into practice what they had taught me. Um, one thing I did notice, uh, and you'll love this Gary is, um, I sat behind it. So think of a room that's got a hundred salespeople in, it, like a boiler room. Cause that's really what it looked like. It was a giant open room with chest high cubicles. So you could see just barely over your eyeballs. If you were tall enough, a hundred salespeople, 10 sales reps per row, 10 rows across one big giant square. You had 28 cubic feet that you sat in. This is before, uh, PCs or anything, we had one mainframe computer and an AS400 in another room that you could go use the screen. Otherwise you sat there with three stacks of yellow pages, phone books of businesses that you had to call on on a telephone. That's how sales was at Xerox back in the day. And a lot of people can't imagine that. And so I sat at the desk and the object was is you were either dialing for appointments or you were out in the field uh, being at those appointments. And so three cubicles up from me was a gentleman by the name of Bob. And to keep Bob anonymous, Bob was the number one rep 17 out of 20 years in the country for Xerox and happened to sit three cubicles up from me. Now, I know how lucky I got working for my dad. I know that I didn't close a lot of deals. I'm now freshly trained thinking, hmm, okay, how do I use this training? And how can I make my budget for this year? So I decided to burn another full month of my budget. Now this will be four full months. Um, and travel with Bob in the field and find out what does this guy do with the training he got that made him number one 17 out of 20 years. What's different about Bob? And when you looked at Bob, he didn't look any different. Looked like every other sales rep. In fact, Bob looked like he had too many dinners here and there. And you're thinking, you know, Bob's not in great shape, but God, he knows what he's doing. So I traveled with Bob. We made friends, and I found out what his trade secrets were, and how well he was at making deals happen. And Bob utilized my skills from my previous business, uh, the travel to help him as well. So after working with the training, working with Bob, learning the skill sets, I then set out to actually do my territory with only six months left in the year uh, to make the budget. The budget was about 800 and I think almost 900,000, 892 or something like that was the budget for the year uh, over the previous years. I ended up selling 1.2 million that year in that budget. And then the second and third year, I ended up selling up to 11.2 million by the third year in that territory. So it took a territory from 800 and some thousand just under a million to 11.2. Um, you can imagine that uh, at that point, I was the hero at Xerox. They wanted to say, what do you want to do next? And you'll really love this part of it. It's very interesting. I said I wanted to get out of sales. You could literally hear the pin drop in the room when I said that out of my mouth. There's five other executives in the room (laughs) (laughs) with the whole Western region. I was in the room with the Western region president and the VP and so forth, right? Looking for a position for me in their sales organization. And I say, I don't wanna be in sales anymore. So after the dead silence that seemed like forever was probably only 10 seconds, but seems like forever. um, One of the executives asked me, well, what would you like to do? And that's when I opened my mouth and said, and you'll love this Gary. I want to get into marketing what respectful salesperson wants to get into marketing ever, you know, back then too, that was when sales reps said marketing stinks. These leads are crap. They're horrible. And, uh, marketing said, these poor salespeople can't sell if their life depended on it. We're sending them these great leads. What's wrong with them. And so you had the big us and them and Xerox pointing to each other. And so me making that comment to my sales exec was like, I was going to the other side. Uh, you could just see it on their faces. Without a lot much to do, I actually was placed on a 10 person team. Um, After about a month of deliberation, they made me an offer. And part of the offer was, the good news was they found a position in marketing for me. Uh, The bad news was I was living in San Diego and I had to move. And so I moved from San Diego, signed a two year deal to go to Rochester, New York. Now just imagine the weather, San Diego to Rochester, New York. It doesn't get more polar opposite than that. I mean, it was so bad that my first uh, six months in Rochester, when I drove my car out there, I lived on a plow street, didn't realize it. And I'd left my car on the street in a snowstorm. And it literally got plowed away the next morning, ended up on the neighbor's yard, upside down in a big snow pile, buried. (laughs) And of course, they're all laughing at me that I left my car on the street, the rookie from California. So my indoctrination. But the good news of all this was I was put on the Malcolm Baldridge team. It was a 10 person team at Xerox. It was assigned to steal market share back from the Asian market that was stealing them in the small copier division. So I was part of a 10 person team to design a marketing plan, a full sales funnel plan and an implementation plan out in the field to all 63 districts of Xerox. And so they tapped me in the team because of my selling skills and organizational skills to be the deployment of the sales plan. And so I helped with the team of 10, again, it was 10 people and I was by far, by far I say this dumbest person in the room because I think everybody had at least one PhD if not a couple of them in that room. They're all scientists, really smart people. And here I am uh, flopping in there with my uh, chemistry degree from San Diego State. No PhD, um, no degree in marketing or anything like that. And I'm here on this team. And we all work together to devise a really great uh, plan. That coupled with a sales plan so tying marketing and sales together so it was my first time seeing why marketing and sales needs to work together and not point fingers at us and them. And by doing that we were able to steal market share back from the Asian market. And it was a success for Xerox if you look at their stock they really jumped stock that year so when I joined Xerox stock was $22 a share when I left it was 160 some dollars a share that's how much an increase it was because of that market so right place. Right time for me to go from a top salesperson into a marketing position. And that's kind of how I cut my teeth in marketing and really become a seasoned salesperson that understands how leads get generated and why it's so important to follow up on those leads with many different types of processes that are important versus just having a great salesperson. And we can talk more about that later, but that's kind of my story at Xerox. And from there, I left there and went to Kinko's and we can talk a little bit more at Kinko's story, but I actually was hired by a gentleman uh, named Paul Orfila, who was Mr. Kinko, uh, because he had dark kinky hair. That was his nickname out of UC Santa Barbara. And that's how the stores got their name uh, from Paul's hair. And most people don't know that. And he owned a Xerox 8200. That he got a special cord that was 12 to 13 feet long so he could plug it into his garage, roll up the door and roll it out onto the street so people could make copies at UC Santa Barbara. That's really how Kinko started. Most people don't realize he started in a little house with a garage and a machine with a special cord because it's a 220 volt to plug in like an old appliance plug to get the company started. Humble beginnings for that company. If you look at them now, they're FedEx office. Um, But that's another great story for that. And so from there, I actually launched, uh, when I left uh, Kinko's, I launched into my own career, really, uh, Gerson and Associates and been doing that ever since. And so we're basically sales and marketing consultants, uh, not an agency. It's me and my partner, Chris, who's very well known, and we help companies uh, grow. But sales process is probably one of the most important things that most companies forget. And I'll kind of stop there, Gary, and let you ask some more questions. Because like I mentioned, I could I could go on for a while about some of those stories.
1: No, I I... Lo- I- I was, I think that's really interesting stuff. I know kind of we were talking before even uh, we went live here, just that even what Kinko's used to do before they became the office type of, or printing type of company that people knew them from. And I guess now they, their, their FedEx office, is that the actual name of the, what they've merged into? So they don't. The official
0: uh, name of Kinko's now just FedEx office with a completely different logo. Colors are similar to what Kinko's have, a completely different logo. But yeah, would you like me to share more about the, uh, the Kinko story and kind of their uh, morph into who they are today?
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that.
0: Yeah, very interesting story. So when I went to go work for them, there was uh, 13 locations here in San Diego. Uh, there was you know hundreds of locations throughout the United States. And the biggest uh, profit centers, believe it or not, were San Diego County and uh, Houston, Texas. And so my choices were go to Houston or excuse me, Dallas, Texas, not Houston, Dallas. Uh, Fort Worth area or stay in San Diego. After living in Rochester for two years, you can kind of figure out what my decision was stay in San Diego. (laughs) So (laughs) enjoy the weather. Not Dallas is a cool place. I like Dallas Fort Worth area, but just love San Diego so much more since it's kind of been my alma mater and I've been here for a long time. And uh, they had a store downtown that was a thousand square feet, which was the typical Kinko store. Think of a long rectangular bay, that's usually what they rented out, and they had a few uh, analog copy machines in there, a few self-service machines up front. Uh, they did some shipping with both UPS and FedEx back then, so both they would ship either company, and some post office stuff, if uh, you paid enough, they'd drive it over to the post office and ship through the post office. And that was really the the preface at Kinko's, and they were doing mostly prof notes. And what prof notes were in the beginning for Paul, especially in the early days of UC Santa Barbara, was if you had like class, let's say you had a business admin class at UC Santa Barbara or mechanical engineering, which they're famous for up there at that school. And your professor was Professor John and he used this textbook and had these notes every semester for his class. Well kinko's actually reprinted those professors notes put them in little slots on a wall and you just go look up you'd walk in as a student look up your professor your your major your professor and grab those notes and pay for the copies. And they just keep replenishing those in there for each student, and so that was their business was professors notes, unfortunately all those copies were pieces of textbooks. Uh, that were in there with the professor's notes, previous students' notes uh, that they, uh, the professor authorized to put in there, and they ended up in a giant national lawsuit for copyright infringement. And guess who was pushing the lawsuit? Not the schools, everybody guesses. Not the students. Obviously, they wanted the notes. The publishers. The publishers amassed together I forget who the major publisher were sued kinkos for copyright infringement, it took seven years of courts to get through that and during that time kinkos decided to reinvent itself. Uh, And that's actually when I got hired in so I wasn't, I was there after the professor notes were going in so this 1000 square foot store downtown was a hybrid college notes and then some uh, lawyer copy, and they did a lot of stuff for uh, small law firms that had to copy all these weird side sheets for court cases. And that was really their business. And so we had two machines where I had two employees all day long, just unstapling stuff for lawyers and putting them on the glass. Hit one, another one It takes all day to copy one box, you know, one eight and a half by 11 box of paperwork. And we charged a lot for that service but they wanted to go digital. So I brought the digital part of Xerox and what I didn't say why I was at Xerox, they went from analog to digital. This is when their docu series of machines, which are now in all different sizes. I call them like the million dollar machines because the full uh, digital one hooked up to an AS 400 computer back then, now they hook up to PCs uh, with all the attachments was about a million dollars with payments. If you took all the payments out for the lifetime of the product it would equate to about a million bucks. That includes the service and everything. And so Kinko's decided they wanna go digital. So we brought that equipment into Kinko's. I talked the owners into bringing several pieces of that. So we put uh, seven of these machines here in San Diego. We put the first four downtown, uh, started advertising to strictly businesses downtown. And we grew the store from a thousand square feet to 10,000 square feet. Imagine that 10 times for all this digital equipment. Then we invited, uh, put a big PR piece out. Invited all the businesses, including uh, restaurant groups in the area, which there are tons of restaurants. Our downtown was doing what lots of downtowns were doing back then: revitalizing downtown to the way you see San Diego now. It wasn't like that back then, but it was getting like that. They only had one street with all the nice restaurants, and they now it's the whole downtown area just migrated over. And we provided a business atmosphere. So this event was a huge kickoff. We had lights like it was a Hollywood event outside going in the sky. You know, We had golden tickets to get in. I mean, we really produced a huge event for this. Um, and we had business leaders press show up. And what we did is I designed this little demo that we had done at Xerox in the digital room back in Rochester. And what we had done is we uh, contracted somebody in Ireland that was at Xerox that I knew. Uh, somebody in England, somebody in New York and somebody in St. Louis to be on camera back then an AT&T camera conference room. Much different Gary than what we're doing now with zoom this you had to pay a lot of money and go to a special room to get on camera. So we brought the cameras into our demo room at Kinko's downtown because it was three blocks away the AT&T building. And they uh, with a lot of money offered to do this for us. And we showed the guy in Ireland showing the headline of the newspaper. That day in Ireland, and we had the same person do that in every city that we had contracted with. And we had them digitally scan those on a scanner, and the whole crowd press were watching this. You think about this this was 19, 1993, 94, right in there. Digital wasn't a big thing then. Nobody even knew what email was back then. You think about it back then, we've come so far in such a short period of time technology wise and all these headlines were scanned they arrived at the machine digitally we manipulated them into a 24-page book with five tabs for each section and on the back we had a hand drawn of a picture of somebody's hand and then across the top that it said technology is now in your hands and we printed these books complete with the tabs the front and back cover hot off the press it was glue bound so the glue was hot we made sure we put them in someone's hand so they could feel the heat and we turned them upside down on purpose so they could see the hand with technologies now in your hands. And that launched Kinko's into the digital age. It cut the headlines here in San Diego. It went across the country. It did so well. We expanded uh, obviously Dallas-Fort Worth next into 10,000 square foot stores. And now that's the footprint that you basically see for a Kinko store, somewhere between seven and 10,000 square feet across the country, away from their humble roots of the thousand square foot store, which was the big store. Uh, Paul's idea was to do this and grow this with his board and sell it to an entity that'd be interested. Uh, the first offer they got, believe it or not, was from UPS. Um, UPS made an offer. Kinko's kind of uh, turned it down, and FedEx came in with a much better offer, and that's how they ended up being with FedEx. And it became FedEx's property and ownership over a two-year period, where they morphed all the stores into FedEx Office over time, including all the TV promotion and PR that they had done with that. Now you're thinking boy that's too bad for ups well not so bad for ups because they bought my other customer here in san diego mailbox etc so mailbox etc oh, wow. turned into the ups store that's who they are now so that used to be a mailbox <laughs> etc which was my other client so was i lucky yeah right place right time having kinkos uh here in southern california headquartered in mailbox etc and helping both those companies uh, exit plan out was a, a great position to be in for sales uh, and marketing to be able to help those companies on, with teams of people. Grant, you, they took teams of us to do this, uh, to make those sales. But that's the Kinko story, and that's kind of what they're at today. They're the juggernaut of the uh, what we call the small office home office.
1: No, I, I, I love it. I, you know, stuff stuff you just really don't even think about in terms of like the history of some of these, these companies. So I guess if we can, I maybe kind of shift gears here because I know you've mentioned it a little bit. When it comes to these sales processes, I mean, you're you're talking about million-dollar machines at Xerox. How do you deal with these lengthy, pro, you know, processes that I'm assuming take at least months? I'm, I'm sure nobody you're not picking up the phone and they're saying, "Hey, are you interested in a AM500 or a DocuHub or names I'm just going to butcher?" But uh, Um, (laughs) uh, and they they say, you know what, actually, yeah, you know, ours are getting run down. I'll take three, you know, come, come on later this afternoon and put them in. Uh, could you kind of speak to what those type of sales process and how you manage that without kind of dropping the ball along the whole, along the way?
0: Sure. Sure. That actually goes back to my training at Xerox. They were really good about process. Um, one thing they drilled into your brain in that one-on-one training. And by the way, if you failed the training, you got fired on the spot at their training center in Virginia. Literally, I watched people get escorted out of the classroom. Nice to see you, I never see you again. They literally weren't even on the campus that afternoon. They put them on a plane and shipped them out. So you had to know your stuff. And that's why they say anybody that graduated from Xerox back then, that's why a lot of companies seek those type of salespeople. Because they have that basic consulting process training that just doesn't fail. It's successful time and time again. And there's been many books written about sales after that they all follow this similar process using different words. And that process basically, as you mentioned, Gary, does it take months? Well, if it was a two-month sales cycle, most of the time, um, you and I might not be sitting here. I'd be on an island somewhere, Um, maybe a couple islands that I purchased going forward. (laughs) No one's cutting million-dollar checks or even quarter million-dollar checks like that. It's a process. And really what it takes is the salesperson themselves have to understand that, they're not really selling, they're consulting, giving advice, becoming a resource for the entity, knowing that this entity may take up to 18 months to close the deal. 18 months, year and a half. And it's the long game. And if you're not prepared for the long game, then you're going to lose right from the beginning. And in that 18 months, there's a lot of process that you have to conduct, one step to the other. And if you skip a step or two, you could obliterate your entire 18 months that you've worked so hard for. That's one. So you need to have patience and fortitude to make it in those kind of sales. The other is, when you're doing enterprise type sales, is you have to know who the key players are at the company. And cross your fingers, because you know what's going to happen, one of your key players, maybe one of your key influencers, is going to leave, either get promoted laterally within the company, no longer an influencer, or get an upward promotion to another company during your sales cycle. So the average tenure was two to four years at a corporation back then you can imagine with an 18 month sales cycle you're right in that window of change. And so the key was figuring out who the key players were and figuring out who the key players might be during your sales cycle, so you can actually preempt who might come in and make sure that they're more friendly than a non friendly in your process. Um, The real short circuit way to talk about this is when you go into a company you have your gatekeepers everybody talks about the person up front just got to get you connected to somebody else there's a process for how to become good friends with the gatekeeper how do we show them respect which a lot of reps may or may not do because they don't think much of the gatekeeper they don't realize how hard those people work to do what they do and really what they're instructed to do so we learned early on from xerox as they showed you in the process to show respect for every Single person you dealt with in your process, because each one of them is as important as the person writing the check, which we call A.K. decision maker. Right? Decision maker is the person that writes the check, authorizes the payment, uh, or cuts it themselves, um, and that's the key that you're looking for. But in consultant sales, you're amassing an army of influencers to the decision makers. So just in case that decision maker is not quite sure, yes or no, they're on the fence that army screaming at them of their employees saying we want this makes it very hard for them to say no. And I've been in several situations where the person in charge that was the actual person that wrote the check, the decision maker authorized it, wasn't keen on the idea, but I had amassed 10 or 12 individual employees underneath that person that was, they would have been in very bad political shape had they said no to their entire team. And so that's one of the techniques that Xerox teaches you in the process that I now to impart in companies, whether the cycle's short or long, understanding who the players are at their potential client, how important those players are and what role they play in your process and what role they play in the company so you understand the entire thing. And that shows respect too to the person that you're trying to get to when you finally get there to talk to them, that you understand their business, their competitors, and their company. Versus just being another salesperson, you become a resource.
1: So when you're kind of like working with um, all these influencers and gatekeepers, did you kind of have a specific strategy for each of them about, because I assume you're also dealing with a lot of different personalities during something like this.
0: You are. You You get personalities are all over the spectrum. And so you have a playbook. And so I used to have a playbook that I'd open it up and have the account name. It have the structure of the company, their actual organizational structure. Even if most people didn't even know what it was in the company, I'd start mapping it out after asking questions. It's the first thing they trained us to do. Uh, once I understood the organizational structure, then I looked at who I was currently dealing with, where they were in the organizational structure, and figured out where the decision maker might be if I didn't know already, and then how many players I'd have to interact with, and who those players might be along that, you know, nine to eighteen month sales cycle that I'd mentioned earlier. And so that playbook became the uh, institution of how you're going to go after that account. And of course that playbook, like any playbook and like any plans, like, and you've read some of these great books, it's like the best plans. Once you go in contact with, with the customer, they just all go out the door. And so you have to constantly be planning and rejiggering your plans as things change in the field. But without that starting format, you're gonna be lost in your head on who's who Who do I have to talk to? And then even personal details about each person. You know, Are they have a family? What are their values so you can find common ground? What are their likes and dislikes? You need to know this about every key player that you're selling up to. So it isn't as simple as I know John or I know Mary. It's I know Mary's got three kids. She's been married for 30 years. Her and her husband love to go here on vacation. And so when I talk to Mary, who's the gatekeeper, she knows I I generally care and understand who she is and what her role is not only personally, but in the company. So it's very important you know them personally as well as know what's going on in the business for them as well. And you gotta remember when you're selling, not every employee is a happy-go-lucky camper at that company. And so you have to play between the political lines as you navigate between all these people to get to the right person.
1: Yeah, it sounds, as you're saying that, I, I'm just like picturing you know, like an FBI type of thing where you have a dossier on each person and you got like a big thing on the wall of them and say, all right, so that's not the boss. How do we get to the boss? You know, type of, type of thing, trying to piece together the puzzle of, uh, in this case, the sale or of the the who done it or, or what or whatnot.
0: But, yeah, actually, Gary, you're not far off. Our top your top five accounts, you literally had to draw them up on a whiteboard for management uh, when I was at Xerox and show them what you understood about the account, not from your eight and a half by eleven playbook. You had to draw it up there without looking at your playbook. They want to know if you knew it in your head, besides on paper that you owned those top five accounts. Because Xerox knew if you could close two to four of those top five accounts, they would make their budgets rolling up to the district budget.
1: So when it came to developing new accounts, because uh, I assume you didn't really start, or, or correct me if I'm wrong, but did you, I assume you didn't start with any accounts. I don't, uh, or, but maybe, I guess maybe you did. But uh, when it came to trying to get those new meetings, what, what are some of the techniques you use to to get them? Or what lengths did you go to, to, I guess, maybe get some of these meetings?
0: Oh, I got some good stories there. Um, you know, I'll go back to my, my Xerox selling days. A little different now. Uh, techniques are a little different today uh, because of all the technology. But uh, pre-massive technology. And I think back, let's see, then I, I did have a mobile phone, but it was one of the bigger, awkward. No smartphones back then. It was just a regular straight phone. It's pre-Blackberry days. Um To give you an idea of what cell phone technology, I was one of the few people that had one in my car uh back then. I had a mounted one. If people remember that cell phones were mounted in your car back in the beginning. <laughs> they weren 't unless you got a transportable one that unlocked it looked like a brick about this big that you 'd carry with a handle with a handset on your head. That was the transportable ones, but I had the fully mounted ones back then. um How did I prospect so there were some accounts given that you had to manage uh in a territory, but you would have trouble making your budget if that 's all that you were working on. That's usually about half of your budget they calculate is the accounts that you're given to manage. Um it's the other half you have to go out and get. And so my territory was all of San Diego County and it was called the print for pay market, meaning that anybody that printed on a piece of medium and then sold that to somebody else, they call that print for pay. So Kinkos would print for pay, right? You go in there, consumer goes in, they get some copies, they pay for the copies. That's print for pay. So I was mostly dealing with what they call the offset printers, the big presses and the printing that was not a copy machine. And Xerox hadn't really broken into that market. They really wanted it bad. And I just come from that market. That's what my parents did for a living. They were in the print for pay market. And so I kind of understood it from that standpoint. And so Xerox was very suit and tie. Uh, Three piece or two piece suit was their dress code. You actually got a book about this thick with the dress code. Back in the days when IBM had to wear sock suspenders as part of their dress code. I remember reading my buddy who worked for IBM. We didn't have to wear sock suspenders, but it was that detailed. Can you believe it or not? Can you imagine giving this to somebody today? What kind of lawsuit that throw off? It'd just be crazy, right? Besides wearing the, you know, the Chuck E. Cheese uniform, where they can't tell you to wear sock suspenders. I mean, it's just crazy, unless it's really part of their uniform. Um, and then you were only allowed to wear a red tie if you're going out closing that day. So we always knew who was closing deals in the morning meetings of sales because they had red ties on or the women had red sachets or something red on their clothing. Uh, it was very much color coded back then. It was really interesting. I can't even imagine any of this flying today in HR if you really had some of these things in place. But saying that um, it was really interesting with uh, how they processed all this is it kept you very focused on what you needed to do. And so for prospecting, what I did, instead of wearing all that suit and tie, print shops did not salute to the guy driving up in the Mercedes, uh, like the insurance guy in a full three-piece suit. Owners may have been okay with that, but not the guys in the back. They were making the biggest influence on the owner to buy this equipment, right? And so what I would do is I'd go out in my kind of okay average car. I had a change of clothes uh, downstairs, so I had to show up at Xerox every morning in my suit for my first morning meeting before out the door at 8 o'clock. And then I would go downstairs in my car and change clothes in my car into my jeans, my polo shirt, and my uh, brown uh, loafer shoes. And I would use those to go into the back door of all the print shops in San Diego. So I entered through the back door, not the front door, and talked to the guys in the binding department, in the shipping department, made friends with everybody in the back, and worked my way to the front, just like I was taught at Xerox instead of trying to come through the front door. So by the time I got to the decision makers, they already knew who I was that I'd been in the shop for quite some time and all the things I was doing that had really in their mind, not a lot to do with sales, but investigating into their productivity, looking at their competition and their customers and how I could help them actually generate more revenue was my approach. And I had a playbook for that, just for that print for pay market that I used over and over again to be successful. And so I was very successful at turning accounts that Xerox had never spoken to, to buying equipment. That's how I sold 11.2 million in one year. So it took me two and a half years of prospecting those deals to get the actual purchases down the line.
1: That's awesome.
0: That's just one example. I can give you another one that you'll love. Uh, This was long after Xerox. I was still selling and I couldn't get into this one account for the life of me. And every salesperson has this story. They got this media account they want to get into, but just the back door shut, the side door shut, the front door shut. It's like this house is boarded up and you just can't get in no matter what, unless you like mine underground and come up through the bottom. Right, for uh, just analogy. And um, I just couldn't get to this guy that I wanted to talk to. So I found a chocolate company uh, in San Diego County that could make chocolate in any shape you wanted. And they did uh, basically mold injecting with chocolate. So I had them, I took my dress shoe down there and had them make a mold after my dress shoe and make a chocolate mold that was full size. And I had them put it in plexiglass and I sent it to this guy. And this is the cliche of cliches. I said i'm trying to just get my foot in the door will you please just talk to me for five minutes does this chocolate earn me five minutes and i got a meeting with that it was so gimmicky and so uh, cliche even back then the guy says i got at least talk to this guy that took all this effort to make this shoe and it got me in the door I never used it again just the one time but it's just one of those things i didn't know what else to try to do i couldn't network my way in through anybody i knew and so this was the best chance i had and it worked so sometimes mm. off the wall stuff works. You never know.
1: You literally sent a chocolate shoe.
0: I'm not <laughs> proud to say it, but I actually did it. It's before you know, the marketing. Year 2000. I would never, <laughs> never do that again. I'd probably get shunned on social media forever.
1: Oh gosh, I I love it. I I think it's brilliant. I'm like, I'm trying to think. Can I can I use that today in 2021? When might it might kind of a
0: clutter, right?
1: yeah, how do, I, how, do I, how do I borrow that and, <laughs> and do that since you know we do a lot of a B2B work here. So we're always trying to get into to different companies too. So Yeah.
0: By the way, I didn't invent that. I heard about that from somebody else. And that's who turned me on to that chocolater that did the mold injecting, because they had done the same thing with a woman with her women's dress shoe that she had sent out.
1: Well, I know we're kind of getting up there in time. So I guess for anybody who you know wants to kind of explore this deeper, I know you guys do a lot of uh, you know, different sales and marketing things. So, for anybody who's kind of looking for, you know, some more information about that, what is kind of the best way to get in touch with you, or who who should reach out to you, uh, type of thing?
0: Sure. Yeah. Any company that's looking to connect their leads, I call marketing. Right. That's a Christian and I do well. Is is drive lead generation, demand generation, leads. They already got an engine. Great. Connecting that to an actual sales funnel, because we all know that eighty percent of the leads you generate don't close. And those are the ones that are most important to the business long term. And so developing a process to what to do with the 80% that don't close versus the 20% that are going to close anyway is really what makes a company successful or not. And Chris and I have an uncanny way of developing and showing those processes that I was kind of describing earlier, what to do once you get that lead in the door. And then take it all the way through to a close and track it so you know exactly what your metrics are for sales and it helps you with uh, projections moving forward. It also helps you know when the company is going to have a slowdown or a speed up based on how many leads are in the pipeline in your process. And so those are the kind of companies that are great to talk to us. And Chris and I, you know, for free, we'll talk to any company, um, you know, cost just call us up and we'll shoot the gab and give you what we think, you know, and then it's up to you from there, what you'd like to do. We're a pretty low pressure kind of company. Um, To get a hold of us, the best way is you can go to our website. Uh, It's www.R, as my first initial, Randy Gerson Associates.com. So rgersonassociates.com. You can email me at randy at rgersonassociates.com. Or if you're really uh, aggressive and you want to just call me, I'll give you my cell number. It's 619-851-0265. Feel free to call me, text me. I pretty much answer just about anything. Uh, Happy to talk to other professionals in the field that do the same thing I do. Always great to share stories and gain knowledge and become better as a community at what we do.
1: Well, I love it. Well, we'll make sure we share, uh, you know, your website in the show notes. uh, Randy at rgersonassociates.com. Check him out, give him a call, send him a text. Um, Absolutely. Randy, thanks so much for uh, coming on today. I really appreciate your time.
0: Uh, Gary, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I hope the audience enjoyed it and wish everybody a self safe and a happy day.
1: All right. Take care, Randy. Thanks. You bet. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Pipelineology podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and look forward to seeing you on the next one. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.